Hey guys, welcome back to Unleashed, and it is great to see you guys. Well, you know, you can at least hear me. I can't see you. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing you can't see me today because we're having some video problems, so you're only going to get this in audio. Um, but anyhow, we're going to push forward. We are the resistance. So, hey, welcome to Unleashed. Glad you're here. Eric, good to see you as always. Yes, good to be here. <laughs> can you hear that in his voice? Uh, we're, we're having all these problems. So, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's kind of like the Grinch right now. It's uh, like, uh, it's, you even yeah. have green on. I do. I've got my Smokey the Bear shirt on today. <laughs> hey, boo-boo. Oh, it's, you know, it's like, boy, what a week I've had today. It's just been one of those days. So we're coming to you just a little bit late. Not for those of you that will tune in later and hear this, but if you're trying to get us on time today, oh, it's just things have been kind of going haywire and wonky, but we're going to push through and we're going to do this. We're going to light this candle. So... Well, man, anyhow, I just got back. I was in uh, Wisconsin in Platteville. You know where Platteville is? No. It's about 420 miles. Okay. And I had a lot of Wisconsin cheese while I was up there. And let's just say I'm paying the price. Are you now? We'll just leave it at that. But uh, they did have, you know, I was speaking for a game dinner up there, and they did a chili cook-off, and there was like 10 different chilies, you know, and whoever, you know, like if you liked theirs, you took a, a, a bean out of this little container you put it in this little jar and then they counted them up at the end kind of a thing and let's just say that was a lot of chili and i would probably not if i was a woman not have been wanted to have been married to a lot of those guys when they got home oh i'm sure it's yeah. quite a mess oh it, well i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure it was yeah what's the term dutch oven is that what they call it yeah uh, i believe so yes that would be the technical term yeah this is uh the male version of unleashed today totally male um, but anyhow, it was a great time. Um, really, I got to take my uh, my 14-year-old with me, and it was awesome, except she was sick, which I felt, you know, bad for her. But, you know, she did a great job working the the, uh, the product table, and we got, you know, back after the event, and, um, you know, she was just doing the whole day quill and night quill thing, and we're playing Go Fish until midnight. Ooh. You know, the medicine kind of had her wired, and, you know, I'm I'm still wired after the event, so we're playing Go Fish. And it's kind of funny because she had taken – like tissue paper and shoved it up each nostril as we're playing. So she kind of looked like a walrus, but the tusks were in the wrong place. Nice. Uh, you, you should have gotten a, I have a theory. So you get pictures of your kids like that. And then you tell them if you run away, this is the picture that's going in the paper. I have the picture. And I said, I might use this for the podcast. Yeah. And she was like, I don't care. I'm like, Oh, well then I kind of took the fun out of it. Took the phone right. Yeah. Now. You got to embarrass them. So, yeah. But it was, you know, like I said, there was a there was a great event. Um, they they let me know today about ten percent of the audience. I think it was like just about ten percent on the button received Christ. That oh, night. good, That's yeah, amazing. So really cool stuff. And speaking of chili, speaking of gas, I was on my way home, and I was like, and I come through. They had to go through Iowa to get to Wisconsin the way I came, and I was somewhere in Illinois. And my gas, you know, I looked at it once, like 75 miles left, 50 miles. Well, I'll, I'll be fine. You know, I'll, when it gets to 40, the light comes on. And that's when I'll start looking for a gas station. There was nothing. I'm driving and driving. And I'm going, this can't be true. I'm getting on my GPS. You know, nearest gas station to me. There's nothing. When I pulled into the gas station, I literally coasted down the ramp. You know, I kind of did one of those numbers and pulled in. When I, I have a 21-gallon tank on my, uh, my Canyon Denali. When I pulled in. Um, I had, was it, it was 20.268 gallons that it took out of a 21 gallon tank. Yeah. That was calling it a little bit close. That's too, that's too close. That was too much. But, uh, thankfully God was watching it over, over me and my stupidity, but well, it's not good to run them low 
you know, the fuel is what helps keep the fuel pump cool. And Yeah, and I think someone has told me one time, you get to the bottom of a gas tank and your sediment kind of gets down there too, and it's kind of pulling stuff you don't want out. But Yeah, I mean, there's a filter, but you know. Well, live and learn, start uh, paying a little better attention when I'm on the road. But, you know, one of the things I love, you know, is I get to take my family a lot of times, you know, on these trips. And, you know, sometimes you can be in a closed space, sometimes a little bit too much, you know, get on each other's nerves. But honestly, um, it's way better than sitting on your cell phones. And we get to, I call it windshield time, where we get to be together and we make up games. You know, like we think about everybody in our family and say, if we were ever attacked, who would be the best at this or who would be the best at just any kind of weird stuff to take up the time? But it, it forms relationships. You get to know each other. I mean, you really do, um, which is going to play in a little bit on today's topic. And let me just kind of say, well, first of all, I don't. do we have any kind of a question this week, or has it just been one of those days where we didn't have a chance to kind of? Well, uh, I was going not, to, not really a question, but I was going to tell you, have you been down to see the Ark Encounter? Oh, down in, is it like in Florence, Kentucky or somewhere? It's south of that, yeah. You're in the right ballpark. I've driven by it, but I've never had a chance to go in it. I went Saturday. Oh, yeah? It's uh, Is it worth it? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it, it can get, it's a little pricey. It's like 15 to park, and I think the tickets were 60. Um, and, the, you know, they throw a lot of gift shop stuff at you, too. But, um, you know, there's only been two of those things built ever. Noah built one, and then the Amish built this yeah, one. Yeah, right. Uh, it, it's something. It's the largest wooden structure in the world. Oh, my word. Did they sell umbrellas when you went in or anything? I think they actually do sell umbrellas. I just kind of wondered. Just yeah. Kind of a, oh, they, they, they capitalize on that. Needless stuff. to say, that boat would probably take more than a 9.9 trolling motor. Man, yeah. That, if you were motorizing it. The yeah. size, size and scale of this. And there's the animal animal traps and cages on the inside. Yeah. Showed kind of the whole thing. I mean, it's it's quite an adventure, I, you know, for you guys that are close. People go from all over the world to see it. The, the lady said, you know, Singapore... Wow. We talked about going and just, you know, when it's like two and a half hours and it's not a vacation, you're kind of like, well, you got five hours of driving that day. But if it's something like that where you're not going to forget it, and especially it's something that like even our youngest or whatever, I think would really find interesting and and tell the story. You know, go back about Noah's Ark. Yeah, I think the Creation Museum is probably better. There's more to do. It's more interactive. But uh, the Ark was, it's unbelievable. And that's in the same area? No. Well, not really. They're like 50 minutes apart, which okay. I thought was odd. It's You can buy a ticket and see both attractions. Like, okay, huh. get on the road and drive an hour. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, if you're on a family vacation, you know, you got that windshield time like we just talked about. So, well, like I said, I get to take my, my family on a lot of these trips. Sometimes I don't. But, I, you know, the older I'm getting, the more and more I do because I'm realizing, like, today's topic is going to be something that um, – I think you're going to you're going to really learn a lot and I think you're going to hate it at the same time because we're going to talk about um something called the father wound and you know not having that FaceTime um in in everybody being on cell phones now I wonder what this next generation you know it's going to be like because my my generation didn't have cell phones I mean we had the phone stuck on the wall and you pick it up and you could hear your neighbor talking right kind of had to say, hey, how much longer are you going to be on there? You could, you know, if you picked up quietly, you could listen in to somebody else. We never did that. Yeah. Yeah, right. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's this windshield time where you, you get off your phones because that personal contact is something you can't get back. And I, we were in, in a restaurant here just a, a few days ago, 
And everyone that came in that were waiting for a table, they all got their cell phones out. Nobody was talking to each other. It's one thing to have grown up maybe with a silent father and you didn't really hear from him that much. Maybe he came out of the World War II generation, which that was that was fairly typical because of everything that they had gone through. You know, they were a lot quieter back then. There was this quiet strength. But man, with, with the cell phones now, I, I can't even imagine, you know, what it's going to look like for this next generation. So, um, and I want to say buckle your seatbelts. I want you to say, sit back and really listen to this, this podcast and take it in. It's going to be, you know, some story content, obviously. Um, some of it will be great to listen to. Some of it will be, be difficult because it's going to be like looking in a mirror for many of us. Um, I'm going to try to be as open and honest as I can about my own childhood and about my own being a father and my kid's childhood. And, you know, some of the things that I, I think I've done okay, some of the things I think I've done well, and some of the things that I dropped the ball on. So um, anyhow, with that, let's kind of get started. You know, this this whole thing with the father wound to me was kind of new until about, it was, was around 2000. And the book that John Eldridge put out called Wild at Heart, um, was something that that I, I read for the first time, and it rocked me like no other men's book did or, or has since. Uh, you know, it awakened a lot inside of me. And frankly, a lot of that stuff I've been feeling for years, but I just didn't know what to do with the feelings. You know, and soon after I read Wild at Heart, I attended not one but three Wild at Heart retreats uh, in the mountains of Colorado, just an incredible uh, place to go, to, to go through this stuff with, you know, a group of about 400 men. But every man, you know, was all about discovering the three of the topics that John talked about in the book, and it was an adventure to live, a, was it a battle to rescue, and uh, or no, a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. I've got to remember it now. But few of the guys that came were, were really ready to deal with kind of the fourth topic, and that was father wounds. Um, it's something that was there. We just didn't know how to talk about it or what to call it yet. And opening up that, that box, um, you know, it created a lot of anger in guys, tears, and I mean men openly sobbing. Some were uncontrollably sobbing. There were men hugging men, father and sons embracing for the first time in years, some for the very first time. Um, you know, walls were being torn down. You know, men were, were, were going away and taking a notebook, and, and they were going in walks in the mountain to try to understand their core father wounds, trying to remember um, and trying to find the strength to forgive their fathers so that they could find you know, their own healing and restoration. And, you know, I, I wasn't expecting, I guess, that for myself because I thought my childhood was was pretty close to picture perfect. But it really, it didn't take very long until I found myself unpacking stuff that had haunted me for years. Um, and it was time to deal with it. I had to, to learn how to be able to forgive some of those things, how to ask forgiveness even of my own kids, um, and and how to heal. You know, it was something that, like I said, we hadn't really pressed into this topic before. So let me kind of start off with a little bit of my own story here, my, my own wounds. Um, you know, I don't have many memories of my father when I was really young. Uh, my first memory was, I think it was helping my dad and my sister, who was five years older than I was, chase these white rabbits that we had in a pen that were in the backyard, and somehow they'd gotten out. And I'm thinking, I think I was around four years old. And then my next memory, as I tried to pull this up this morning, was probably Christmas when I was about six. We had moved to a new house, and my dad had this old Kodak um, eight millimeter camera, and he had the, you know, the little light tree. And when we got up in the morning, there was a hallway we had to walk down to get to the uh, to the to the living room where we had Christmas. 
And my sister and I both had to have our teeth brushed. We had to have our hair combed and we had to have our beds made. And we came down in our pajamas and here's dad, you know, filming all this stuff. It kind of looked like some of the old Kennedy films, if you could see how it was kind of a little bit jerky. But um, the next memory I kind of remember was close to that same time. It might have even been that same year. Um, Mom and dad got me this little dart shotgun. You know, it shot like these little rubber darts. And you guys remember that they were kind of like a hard plastic with a soft rubber on the end of it with like a little suction cup. And there was a, a rabbit that you could wind up and let go. And it had these little metal wheels underneath it. And it would just kind of go all over the place as long as you had it, like a hardwood floor or something. And you, you know, you shoot it with the shotgun. But we went to, um, there was a woman who took care of me when I was really young because my mom was a substitute teacher. My dad was a teacher as well. And we went to their house for Christmas this one year. And I was running that rabbit around their, their house on this hardwood. And one of the wheels somehow, it hit a register, I think it was. And it knocked it off and it went down inside this register all through the ductwork down like toward the basement of this guy's house. And my memory was this guy's name was Art. It was his house, Marie and Art. And Art took apart the heating ducts on Christmas Day for hours just to find this one wheel. And then they soldered it back on for me. But as a kid, you know, it kind of went unnoticed, you know, all that work that, that my dad had done as well, helping to see it um, or the, to do it. And, and I couldn't see it in him then that he had been, you know, putting his time and effort in just to try to make sure that I was going to be happy on Christmas Day. Um, next memory that kind of popped off was I was probably about 10 maybe. And my, my dad was working on the pilot light down with our furnace and there was something he had to solder, and it was the, here, son, hold the flashlight. And what I remember is him, you know, trying to get this thing. I, I wanted to go out and play or whatever it was. So he was trying to get done so he could get me out of there. But what I wanted to see happen as I got older in that moment would have been, hey, son, now I'm going to hold the flashlight for you, and I'm going to teach you to do exactly what I just did. You know, my dad was a school teacher, and I think – he spent so many hours, you know, teaching at home and all those things. He didn't want to come across maybe as a as a teacher to me in that moment. I don't I don't know. Um, maybe I was just too impatient, wanted to be out of there, and he was just trying to let me go play. I don't know. But I grew up, you know, being one of those kids that didn't know how to do a lot of things, you know, carpentry and plumbing and all that stuff. My dad could do anything. He could fix cars. He could do carpentry, all that stuff. But and I, and I'll share this in just a little bit. But he was really quiet. Um, and he didn't really share a lot of his own you know, life growing up and how his dad was really quiet and all those things. So um, another memory I had it was when I was in eighth grade. Um, I was sled riding. There was a school just down the, the street from us. It had an incredible hill to sled ride on. And there were some kids that didn't like my dad, and one of them didn't like me. And um, I was tiny. I mean, I was a little kid. And they cornered me at the top of the hill. And I had what my best friend at the time who was with me, and they started to pick on me and pick a fight, and, and he left. My, my buddy left, didn't want to get into it, and not realizing what they were going to do. But the next thing you know, they surrounded me, started pushing me down, and this one kid kept hitting me, and I just didn't want to fight. And so I got home that night, and I can remember just being so upset. I think I went into my room, and I was crying, and rather than Dad coming in, Mom came in. She's like, what's up, honey? And I said, these boys beat me up, and it's because my dad's a teacher and all this stuff. You know, I blamed my dad at that moment, and honestly, he really had nothing to do with it. But I was mad because I felt like he never taught me how to stand up for myself or how to fight. 
And my dad wasn't that kind of a person. He was he was probably the kindest, most caring, gentlest, do-anything-for-anybody person you, you've ever met. And so that was just kind of not how he was wired. But as, as a kid, you know, I was like 13 or 14 years old. All I knew was I was a little kid. I didn't know how to fight, and I just got beat up. Um, you know, like I said, my dad was, he was really quiet, and his father was quiet. Um, so dad just, he wasn't that vocal. I, I never knew my grandfather, and I knew my dad told me that his dad, my grandfather, was was really quiet. And I never knew my other grandfather on my mom's side either, as both of them, they had passed away before I was ever born. Um, but you know, like I said, dad could fix just about anything, but he just really never passed that knowledge on to me. And that's probably one of the wounds. If I could go back and say to my dad, this is something I needed, it would probably probably be that. Uh, you know, thank God for YouTube now, because when, when something breaks around the house, it's kind of like, well, you better call the repairman. And I'm like, you know, pulling my phone out real quick. And I got this, and I'm pulling out YouTube trying to fix stuff. You've probably been there and done that too. But uh, camping, um, my dad, my family loved to camp. And so when you think about, you know, some of the, the areas maybe where the ball got dropped, some of the areas where it got picked up was, you know, camping. My dad loved to take us camping. And it was, it was a great way. We, we, we'd make s'mores and, you know, mountain pies. And, you know, Dad would teach me, of course, how to make a fire, how to do all these different things. Um, and I have a memory of my dad. He was swimming out to a dock. I, I think I must have been around eight years of age. He had me on his back. Maybe I was, maybe I was more like five, actually. Um, and it was before I could swim, so it probably was. And I, I remember he also, we'd go on vacation at the ocean, and he could float on his back in the ocean like he was weightless. You know, he could just float all over. I could never do that. I still to this day don't know how he was able to relax enough. I don't know. But we'd, you know, when, when he'd be doing that, we would always take vacations. And when we weren't camping, um, we'd either go to Atlantic City. This was pre-casino days. Or then after that, we would go to Ocean City as I became a teenager. They didn't have, you know, the alcohol stuff and the gambling. So it was a, it was a little better family vacation spot for us. And, you know, Dad loved to sit out on the porch. Um, it was like a two-story house that we always rented. And, you know, he would always take us out to eat during the week at this, you know, fairly expensive for a school teacher's, you know, salary, this, this uh, seafood restaurant. And it's something that he had saved just for vacation every year to bless all of us with. No matter how big our families got, he would always do that. He would make sure that he was going to spoil us. And, you know, we didn't eat out much as a kid. I think I remember the very first McDonald's being the only place you could almost eat out unless it was, you know, just a, a regular restaurant, you know, back then. But, you know, mom, like I said, she was a stay-at-home mom for the most part. So we didn't have, you know, much money. And my dad, I remember getting a bicycle was a Schwinn. And it was like the envy of all the kids in the neighborhood but I did not know until I grew up that my dad found this at a garage sale and it was all scratched up and he sanded everything down and repainted it and made this thing look brand new. But he never told me. You know, it's, it's when you become an adult, you begin to realize the sacrifices sometimes that your parents make. And he didn't need to be front and center. He didn't need to be the, the hero in the story. He just wanted to make sure that I was loved well. And I can see it now. But what we're talking about is, is working through those, those things that, that can come back and haunt us sometimes. Um, and we always say, and when our kids get older, we hope that they can see things. But we do make mistakes sometimes. Um, when I became, when I became the, the all-knowing teenager, um, my, my dad and I would get into a few arguments, of course. You know, that's what, it's like the old buck and the young buck. And um, I remember it was, a, it was a really crazy cold winter day. The wind chill was like 20 below. 
And I, I don't remember what it was. I think it was something about, you know, money or something with, I had a, a 1970 El Camino was my first car. I was going to be late with a payment or something. And I got mad at him and he was holding me, you know, holding me capable of making a better choice than what I was doing. And I, for whatever reason, felt like, you know, he didn't love me or whatever it was. And I grabbed my shotgun to go rabbit hunting. And like I said, it was like 20 below wind chill that day. And I went out of the house, mad, purposefully not wearing hat and gloves. And I stayed out. I can remember staying out as long as I possibly could, like an idiot. And it was all in an attempt to try to make him feel guilty. You know, I think if I can be honest, it was probably just a cry for attention. I wanted to know that, you know, he cared about me. Um, I wanted to hear from him because he was a quiet man that I mattered. And I wanted to hear him say, you know, those words that I think I was 21. The first time I can remember my dad saying the words, I love you. And I'll, I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but it became something that we never wouldn't say um, at a certain point. Every time we would see each other or leave, um, we would always say those words. So it was, it was about 21. We got into another argument, and I think it was around Easter time. And I, I told him that I thought that he was never proud of me uh, because I wasn't a great student. You know, I wasn't one of his top students in school. I think I rebelled against trying to be that because I was trying to be the cool kid, and I didn't want to be the teacher's pet. And, I, and I, I think I told him that he wasn't proud of me because I, I felt like maybe I was an embarrassment to him because he was a teacher. Um, and nothing could have been further from the truth, you know, if you knew my dad. But that was the, the, the lens of a teenager at the time. And after that talk, which went on for well over an hour, I can remember how upset um, I was. And, I, and that's the first time I ever saw my dad cry. I saw my dad cry then. I saw my dad cry at his mother's funeral. And then I saw my dad cry um, when my... Uh, my grandmother uh, passed away on my mom's side. So, like I said, he didn't, he didn't show a whole lot of emotion, but that was the day when he realized that I needed to hear those words, how important it was. And Dad, was a, he was a strict teacher, but it, it, was, it was really about him caring more about his students' growth than it was about himself looking and acting like the cool teacher. And honestly, that brought back so many students year after year in the summer. They come knocking on the door um, after they graduated, and they would come back and they would tell me, you know, you're one of the only teachers that really prepared me for becoming an adult. And so I, I saw another side of my dad every time someone would come back. And I think, like I said, I think dad tried not to bring home that strictness um, that he wore as a teacher and when he was trying to separate, uh, you know, that kind of thing from, from his, his love for his son. And again, I, I wish I could have understood that, that more as a teenager. But the truth is, you know, no teenager can ever truly understand that yet. And it's because they haven't experienced enough of life. I mean, that's just a fact. They haven't been through it yet. Some of you guys uh, had a chance to listen to the podcast where I had my wife Stacy on here. And you, you might know her story, but if you don't, I'll just give you a, a quick overview. Um, she never knew who her father was. Uh, she was abandoned at the age of eight. Um, and we, she only found out through a DNA test about three years ago who her father was, and she found out that he had been, he'd been gone for 10 years. And I was talking to her, and I said, you know, what are some of the wounds? You know, it's one thing to have a quiet father, another thing to have an abusive or angry father, but to have no father in the home, not even knowing who he was. And I said, you know, when you think about that, you know, what was that like? And she's like, I, you know, I don't even know because I, I didn't know what I was missing. She says, I know when I got to be a teenager, 
that I had this unhealthiness to seek attention from men, you know, as she grew up, because that question, do you see me? Do you want to know me? Um, am I worth your time? Um, am I enough? All those things from a little girl who never had that poured into her from her father um, became front and center. And she says, you know, if I could go back and if I had a father, I wonder you know, how different some of the mistakes that I made when I was young could have been. And she said, you know, a lot of girls, you know, will become promiscuous, seeking attention from boys and men, trying to find love. Um, they're trying to, to be told that they're beautiful, uh, that, that they really are important, like I said, or being seen or, or, or known or, or worthy. And the thing is with young boys at that time, um, we always think about, you know, like young boys taking advantage of girls. But here's, if you have a boy who's been raised by a, by a healthy father and he has helped him understand true masculinity, he doesn't need to go out and try to sleep with girls to prove his manhood or get drunk or race or fight or all these different things because his identity doesn't come from that. It doesn't come from what other people think about him, right? And we, we talk about that on here all the time. But it does. When I, when I see young men doing that kind of stuff, it, it, it looks like that because either they didn't have a father or their own father's wounds you know, caused him to get his worth and value from doing the same thing. And the scary thing is, is when that kind of posing works for you and when it works for a man, because he'll keep doing the same behaviors because he's getting something out of it. And so that's kind of why I wanted to talk a little bit about this today, because we got to right that ship. Um, I was telling you about taking uh, our 14-year-old Emma with me this past weekend as I was speaking for that game dinner up in Wisconsin. And at some point, you know, in the evening, I have a, I have a slide. And that slide, you know, I brought her up as I was reading it. It says... Um, what a child almost always knows about God comes through their earthly father. So I, I kind of, you know, called her over, and, and this is a big group of men, and I said, hey, when you think about looking for the right man as you grow older, and I said, and right now you're, you're attracted to boys right now, and you're kind of looking for the right guy, maybe that you might date sometime. And I said, um, what are you going to be looking for? And she said, without hesitation, chivalry. And I'm like, how do you even know that word? I mean, it's not something that gets talked about much today. And she said, there's not many boys in her school that know how to treat a woman. Um, you know, I've always opened the door for her and, and, and all of my kids, really, but especially the girls. And, you know, when we're walking together, I'll make sure that she's away from traffic if we're on the sidewalk because you always make sure the woman's on the inside. It's how my dad taught me. When I'm walking into a, into a store, you know, if there's a woman there, you open the door. You know, sometimes they're going to go, I got that. You're like, that's fine. But I'm not going to change who I am. I still want people to see what healthy masculinity you know, can look like in the way that we treat everybody, not just women. Um, we, were, we were going to the drugstore. I told you she was sick, and there was a drugstore behind where we were staying, and we were walking out the door. It was, it was snowing. It was weird because it was 60 the next day. And as we came out the, the back door, I did, wasn't thinking, and I was on the wrong side of the street. She was toward the street, and she stopped, and she looked at me. She goes, hey, and she grabs me and pulls me over. She goes, you're on the wrong side. And I loved it because she was paying attention. She knows what it should look like. So that was, that was kind of a neat thing because what we do matters. And you might think that they don't notice, but they do. And if they don't right now in time, they will. So going back to, uh, going back to Dad, and I told you about our, our come to Jesus moment after I, I took off in the freezing cold. Um, it would be a few years later that he and mom would always come to see me. I was, I was touring in music after that. 
you know, I moved away from home. I worked in the steel mill for a few years again, trying to make my dad proud that I was going to make something of myself. And finally, dad's like, is this really what you want to do? And so he had told me his dream, you know, at one point was to be a pastor when he was young. But when he got to college, God moved him to being a school teacher. He just says, I don't care what it is you do. I just want to make sure you're listening to God. Went to college, got into music. And the next thing you know, following that calling, I got to travel all over the world. And mom and dad, if they possibly could, whether we were at Radio City Music Hall in New York City or Estes Park in Colorado or wherever we were, they would show up. And it really had a huge impact because it's not so much what they would say, but that physical presence, I'm going to be there. You know, when I have to be away um, for an event and if, you know, like, one of my daughters or something had a dance or, you know, a kid had a band concert or if there was some athletic sport and he had to miss it. It's a big deal. Um, and that's, that's part of the trade-off with being an itinerant ministry sometimes. But, you know, it's, it's something that we can hold a grudge back sometimes with our kids, I mean, with our, our parents, if they didn't show up for something. And one of the things we have to be able to learn to do is we have to, to learn how to extend empathy, you know, to our parents, especially when we've, we've, we've gotten older, because it's hard to do that when you're young. You don't understand yet. But we have to learn how to extend empathy um, because we, we have these wounds that we've suffered. And whether our parents are still here on earth you know, or whether they've passed on, we have to be able to learn how to work through that. And even if we can't forgive them face-to-face because they're still here and we have to do it maybe by writing a letter after they've passed to be able to say, I do need to forgive you and try to understand your story, it's, it's really that important for our own healing um, as, as well as it is for theirs if they're still here. But I love, I love Romans uh, 14, 1 and 2. I was looking at this when I was getting ready to, to do this podcast. And this is out of the, uh, the message paraphrase. I, I like to use that sometimes when I'm just trying to, to relate and help others understand. And it says, Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do and don't jump all over them every time they say or do something you don't agree with, even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. And here's this last line. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Uh, blaming and shaming others for our bad behaviors, it never fixes the issue, right? It just creates more anger. Um, it enables more excuses. It hardens our hearts. And then we end up choking ourselves and others through our own judgment. So remember, they have their own history or had their own history to deal with so like those words say, treat them gently. But let me add to that, and I'm not adding description. I'm saying, but with boundaries, you know, because maybe they're unsafe, and so it's one thing to treat someone gently, and still have good boundaries. Remember, boundaries are to put around yourself. You don't, you can't put a boundary around someone else. Um, you're you're putting it around yourself to protect yourself. And if they've you know earned that right to be able to come back into your world because they've changed their behaviors, wonderful. It doesn't mean you still don't love them. But you do need to treat them gently, but again, have boundaries. And sometimes you do have to be firm, um, but you don't have to be unkind when you do it. So um, I just want to make sure that I said that in case your situation calls for, for good boundaries, because not everybody um, is in a situation where they can be, hey, everything's a happy ending, you know, here with the very end of the story and we, you know, sail off into the sunset. But loving like Jesus loved is so important to understand. Uh, I mean, how many people do you know? that have been truly changed through gossiping or judging or shaming or shunning or blaming or fixing. You know, I don't know anyone else like that. 
I don't know anyone who's been fixed by that. Jesus didn't do it that way, and he set the example for us not to do it that way. I love Ephesians 5, um, same paraphrase, where it tells us, it says, Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. And then he instructs us, love like that. So remember from one of our our previous podcasts when I talked about, you know, we're supposed to be loving more and needing less. And you can only do that when you know where your one true identity comes from. Because then your needs are being met by Christ in you and not having to go elsewhere to get everyone to cater to everything that you need because of your wounds. You know, as an adult now, I am fully capable of renewing my mind, going back and and identifying who I really am in Christ. Um, You know, unlike a child maybe who is still dependent like on their parents. I mean, I now have a sound mind. And because I'm a believer, I have the mind of Christ. Now, there's no more excuses. It's my responsibility to do whatever it takes to be healthy. Um, You know, after I got off the road from touring, I went to work at a a church back in Pennsylvania, not far from my my mom and dad's house, which was really cool because I had been gone for a number of years. And I remember um, my dad having a hard time speaking one day after I'd moved my family back close uh, to home. And he and I went for a walk back this power line. And he got all choked up, and he said, I never thought you'd live back close to home again. And he was so happy, and especially when I got ordained when I came back, and he was a part of the ordination ceremony. And one of my my best memories was during that time, I was back in Pennsylvania for about five years, and he and I got to go to a Promise Keepers event in Pittsburgh around 2003, if I remember right. And my dad, my mom was musical, but my dad couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, and uh, and he wasn't really open with his worship. But at that event, I heard my dad sing like never before, and I witnessed him raising his hand in praise, and I will never forget that event and that moment. I got to see my dad's personal relationship with God. But then came my father wound to my own kids, and this is the hard part to talk about, and I'm 100% responsible uh, for my own actions. You know, during that time when I had gone back there, I was going through a lot of, um, you know, after having been on tour for all these years and I um, thought my worth and value was coming from, you know, the songs I had written or how many number ones or all that kind of junk that you can get mixed up in your head. And I found myself getting into conversations with another woman at the church. And and I've shared this on here many times, but it was one of those things where, and again, I never met her outside of the church building, but I took my needs and, and those things to this woman to have her feed me with words of life and all that kind of stuff. And to be honest with you, um, when I got busted for it at first, you know, I, I didn't want to admit it. Um, no, it wasn't what you're thinking it is, but I knew better. And I was ashamed. And so I, I wanted to try to cover it up at first. But eventually, you know, I had to come clean. There was no other way around this that I was going to do that. I was going to have to talk about it. And during that time, um, went through counseling, and I was, I was gone for uh, about two weeks to Colorado to try to work through whatever the issue was that was causing me to do this. And during that time, you know, my kids um, went to a relative's house, and I'll never forget this, and I've never shared this. This has never been in a book. It's never been on, on a podcast or anything, but I guess um, it's time. But when I came back to my uh, relative's house, went to pick the kids up, 
my son was was hiding underneath a desk downstairs. I think my my daughter was still pretty young, but my son was just now old enough to kind of understand really what was going on. And I think there was a certain amount of shame. And I went down to get him, and he didn't want to come out from underneath the desk. And I can't. I, in that moment, I wanted to die. Guys, we have to be very careful in understanding that the wounds that we create um, can haunt us for a long time. And not just our kids, but they haunt us because we see the pain of something that we did that it caused someone else. And, but here's the, the beautiful thing is this. When we can renew our minds, when we can teach our children that God really has cast our sin as far as in the east, as in the west, and he remembers it no more, when he says there is no condemnation, he means it. And we get to really learn through the, these difficult situations. I had a guy telling me the other day, um, you know, he said, Brent, if you'd have known me, you know, when I was probably between, he was like between maybe 22 and 27 or something. He said, if you'd known me then, you'd have been ashamed of me because I, I left my, uh, the way I was living, you know, for Christ and kind of was out, you know, sowing my, my wild oats and stuff. He said, but God got a hold of me and brought me back to him. And I said, you know what? It's in those moments that I have a feeling the reason that God brought you back to, to him in a way that now you can't not tell everybody about his grace and mercy is because he showed you what you were forgiven of. And that time in my life when that, when that happened, I, I hate it. But what God did through it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, nothing. But you know, during that time, I felt like I had let everybody down, but no one more than probably my father um, because I wanted my dad to be so proud of me. I'd moved back home, you know, all this stuff. And here I am now back in my home community, and I felt nothing but, but shame and condemnation, which wasn't coming from God. And it was my needing the good opinions of others um, because I didn't understand my identity in Christ that, that caused me to act out like that. I was absolutely drowning in my shame and did everything I could not to take all the blame. So I lied at first. And because of that, God allowed me to stay drowning in my blame and shame until I could take full responsibility for my own actions. And that also meant getting into counseling, like I said, to work on my issues. Taking personal responsibility for my situation was probably the hardest thing I think I've ever done because I thought it meant um, by me telling the truth that I'd lose the respect of so many people. But what I discovered was that by being totally honest about what happened, I actually gained the respect of so many more, including respect for myself when I look in the mirror. And I have seen so many lives that have been changed through the, the telling and retelling of my story. Even you guys listening to this today, I hope you're finding some encouragement out of that and um, that you really can walk into something knowing God's got your back. He's got your six. That God can take the ashes of our lives and he can make something beautiful. Well, as I, as I kind of get into the last few minutes of this here, I, I want to tell you um, something. You no, know, after my personal shipwreck, um, I mean, like, like a couple of months, I, I had stepped down and I was moving my family um, back to the state of Indiana. And my dad was doing everything he could to help me pack up, to fix things around the house. Um, and here I was blaming myself. I could hardly, I was curled up in the fetal position when no one was around because I was carrying so much shame. And my dad, I mean, he worked his butt off and he and mom left and I get a phone call. Your dad's had a heart attack. And I got in my truck and I drove, it was about 20 miles. And I don't think it took me more than about 12 minutes. I was doing about a hundred the whole way there. I saw, I thought this is the last time I'm going to see my dad. And I didn't want it to end like this. And as I'm getting, you know, there, 
the helicopter was was just now coming in for landing, and I only had a minute or two with with he and mom. And I come in, and, and uh, I remember he he'd even thrown up because a heart attack will make you do that sometimes. He was in so much pain, and for the only time I can remember in my life, maybe since I was maybe a, a little boy, is I leaned down and I kissed my dad on the mouth, and he looked at me and he said, "I love you, son, more than you'll ever know." And that became the phrase we would use every time we would say goodbye after that until our final goodbye seven years later. Guys, relationships matter, and they are worth the work. And I want to encourage you guys, too, to to tell your stories because your kids need to know so they don't feel like they're trying to live up to dad. You know, these expectations sometimes that are unrealistic, they need to see our, our mistakes and our failures and to see how God picks us back up again and uses those things for good. Mom and Dad were were in an accident um, in 2013, and uh, you know Dad passed in, in a matter of months, not not long after that. But it wasn't from the accident; he could never walk again. But he had had a massive stroke, and I got to be there the last five or six days as he was as he was passing away from the stroke. couldn't couldn't move a muscle, nothing, not a finger, not a toe, nothing. He couldn't even really blink. Um, and I would sit there and tell stories. Dad, remember that time we were hunting? And you guys, if, you, if you've followed the podcast, you know my dad wasn't a hunter. He would go to take me. But I would tell those stories. And the only way I would know he could hear him was because a tear would run down his face. But I knew he could hear me. And he didn't have to say it. So I said it. It was shortly before he passed. I said, Dad, if, if Jesus calls you by name, and that was a special song that I had written. It was called, um, No One Speaks Your Name Like Jesus. And, and the bridge of that, that song, it says, In my darkness, Jesus came and rescued me. Just like Lazarus, he called my name, and now I'm free, forever free. For no one speaks your name like Jesus. And I said, Dad, if Jesus comes to take your hand, I've got to go to the kitchen just for a minute. It's okay to go ahead and go. I'll take care of Mom, and I'll see you on the other side. And I said, I love you more than you'll ever know. He passed away about two minutes after I left the room. And at the funeral, um, they played some songs that I had written years before about my mom and dad. One of them was a song called Have We Taught Our Children Well? Um, Boy, talk about the father wound. Now I can look back and go, yeah, he really did. Um, Another one called I'm Going Home. You can can look these up probably on uh, YouTube. But the last one was a song called uh, Love is Spelled Time. And before we, we finish this up today, I just want to recite these, these words to you. This is just from the chorus. It says, love is spelled time. Love is spelled time. It's something you spend, not something you buy. Before time is gone, I hope you will find that in the eyes of a child, love is spelled time. As you're working through your stuff, Sit with your kids tonight. Sit with your wife tonight. Put your phone down. Look them in the eyes. Tell your stories. Be willing to be open and honest. And then tell them about the love of Jesus. We'll see you next time.